to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. I don't know if I've ever seen something quite as dramatic as the impact Jackie Daytona seems to be having on the small Pennsylvania town and the Lady Bucks in particular, but I do know that encouragement can really impact people. It's easy to see when you think of a large scale, like like sports. Sporting events during the pandemic with no fans were totally bizarre. Piped in fan noise, cardboard cutouts in the seats, low energy from the players. Some players' performance dipped significantly because the encouragement of playing before a crowd impacted their play. The Lady Bucks seem to have a pretty rocking fan base now that Jackie has energized them. This is why super fans and cheerleaders and spirit clubs can actually be helpful to the atmosphere that produces great sporting events. I was in a band for a few years during and after college and played at bars where no one was listening and to big crowds at festivals and the energy that we brought was significantly impacted by the number of people present. From musicals and plays to performances to speeches to church, a group of people that are encouraged and engaged can radically change the experience. But it's not only large groups of people, even just sharing our lives with our friends and classmates and receiving positive affirmation can be significant. Megan Stibrich was recently relaying the bond she's starting to form with some of her fellow students in the class that she's taking. While they are younger and pretty different from her, their shared experience and forced interaction in class has led to the beginning of relationships. Not long ago, she was telling these new friends that she was quitting her job and how rough the experience had been. When she shared this, she was roundly encouraged by her classmates. You don't need that negativity in your life. Good for you. There's something better out there for you. She was surprised by how encouraging they were with so little detail and how nice it was to be affirmed. Now, this kind of encouragement is great. Everyone loves support and feeling like others are for you. But that encouragement can be easily misplaced. We can be encouraged in a number of ways, both positively and negatively, if we aren't listening to wise and trusted voices. The danger, of course, is when we're encouraged to do foolish or even harmful things. Consider that we are inundated with messaging and people trying to influence us constantly. Research shows that we're exposed to more than 3,500 messages a day. And most of those messages are attempting to find a way to move money from our accounts to someone else's accounts. They are creating dissatisfaction, false comparisons, and empty promises of who we can be or how we'll feel if we just do this or buy that. And it doesn't account for the voices that we've already internalized, the voices of our parents, of trusted mentors, teachers, and friends, much of which is good, but other aspects of it are really problematic. Voices that may have told us that we aren't good enough, that we don't measure up, that we're evil or lazy or ugly or simply average, that we are a failure, that we're a sinner, that will never change. One of the amazing characteristics of people is that what we expose ourselves to, what we listen to and watch and consume moves from the outside to the inside. If we can read and meditate and repeat and have others tell us the truth of who we are, the positive reality of our identity in Christ, we will begin to internalize it. The Bible encourages us this way. 
And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. So as we meditate and fix our attention on excellent and praiseworthy things and begin to act in line with those truths, we are changed. What's outside moves inside and we experience the presence and the peace of God. And we together can help come alongside each other in that process. We all need godly encouragement, people to encourage us with the grace and truth, the love and life of Jesus Christ. This is especially true if we are ever going to believe what we've been talking about this series, that we are not guilty. That not only are we forgiven, but we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. It's one thing to hear it or read it. It's another thing for it to become our identity. Tyler encouraged us with the incredible impact of Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. Megan encouraged us that worldly sorrow and shame messages are straight from the pit of hell, while godly sorrow that leads to repentance and changed behavior can be incredibly helpful to us as we learn to live with wisdom and courage. Today, we're going to bring it home practically because we need some help. We need help to internalize the reality that we are saints beloved by God and not sinners in the hands of an angry God, that we are co-heirs with Christ and not beggars at heaven's gates. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, that we are glorious splendors instead of everlasting horrors. And we need help from more than just God. We need help from each other. We have incredible influence and power to come alongside each other and help replace false narratives with the grace and truth of Jesus. To do that, let's look at two stories in the Bible today that illustrate this reality and point us towards what we can do to be peers of grace encouragers in the truth of God for each other. Let's start with an encounter where a man met God on a mountain at a tree. That man was Moses, the eventual leader of the people of Israel and the instrument of God's deliverance of his people from slavery. But long before that happened, he'd been raised in the household of Pharaoh, the survivor of an edict to have all Israelite boys killed. He was raised in privilege, but was always an outsider, a child of the slave population. When he was old enough to understand his people's plight in a real way, he saw an Egyptian beating one of the slaves, and Moses intervened not with words or with his position, but by killing the Egyptian. Once he learned that the murder he committed was witnessed by others, he fled. Now let's pause here for a minute to consider what Moses' internal messaging might have been at that point. He may have been the only male survivor of a whole generation of boy babies. Perhaps Moses suffered from survivor's guilt, wondering why he was preserved while others had died. Not only did he survive, he was raised in privilege as a member of Pharaoh's household, education, care, luxury, while his family and relatives were the workforce of Pharaoh. It's hard not to feel a little lucky and a little guilty at the same time. And in that household, he could never be Egyptian enough. No matter how he adopted the ways of his adoptive family, he could never change that he was a Hebrew. He wasn't really home. He wasn't the same. He wasn't enough. He was an outsider. He couldn't be fully accepted in Pharaoh's household any more than he could be fully accepted by his people whose lives were so different. There was much to be thankful for in Moses' life, 
but a lot to sort through as well, a lot of tension. And then he killed someone and he fled in fear. I have no doubt that Moses felt guilty. Little doubt that he had some internal narratives that needed to be replaced by God's grace. Now years went by, Moses found a new family, married, tended sheep in the household of his father-in-law Jethro. He'd come from a situation with everything, but then had nothing until finding a home and a new family. At this point in the story, scholars believe Moses was 80, 80 at the time of Exodus. Now we're often in a rush to be used by God to arrive wherever we feel like we're supposed to arrive, but God isn't in a rush. God will develop your character and equip you for your unique calling on a timeline that is often different than your own. Character and faith and replacing wrong narratives with right ones take time. And this scene we're about to look at reveals that Moses still had a long way to go. Let's dive in. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire in the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Whole books have been written about this scene, but I just want to note one thing this morning. Moses noticed the unusual in his surroundings. He investigated what appeared to be miraculous, a bush that was a light and burning, but not burning up. And he had an incredible encounter with God. Would you have turned aside like Moses did? I'm not sure I would have. I'm not always as present as I would like to be, and my spatial awareness isn't awesome. But Moses didn't have a phone in his pocket clamoring for attention. He was with the sheep, in the moment, on the mountain, and he met God. Not some Egyptian deity, but the God of his ancestors, the one true creator and sustainer of all. And God made an incredible request of this man who had lived between two worlds. God would use Moses to free the people of Israel from their slavery. Now Moses had a unique background, which prepared him for this sort of service. But Moses was not sure. He was a murderer after all. He wasn't good enough. He wasn't accepted by either of the two groups he was going to be speaking to. How could he help? Here are Moses' protests throughout the passage and scene, which reveal his inner thoughts. But Moses protested to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? But Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? But Moses protested again. What if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? But Moses pleaded with the Lord, oh Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been and I'm not now. Even though you have spoken to me, I get tongue tied and my words get tangled. But Moses again pleaded, Lord, please send anyone else. And no matter how much God assured Moses in this scene, 
no matter the miraculous signs that were performed, the truth that is declared, the very presence of God in that moment, Moses protested and pleaded over and over again. What we're seeing here really clearly is what Moses thinks of himself. Send anyone else. I'm not enough. Who am I to do this? I don't have the skills. They won't believe me. I wonder if he's thinking to himself, I've never been fully accepted. I have nothing now. I threw it all away when I killed that Egyptian. You know I killed someone, right? I've been trying to pick up the pieces of my life of wasted potential missed opportunities, and my shame is crushing. It's so easy to believe that someone else is special, that someone else has chosen, that they are made to do something that matters, that God has great plans for them, but not for me. The whole of the Bible is a testament that this is not true. But Moses didn't know a truth that we can learn from Scripture. At least he hadn't internalized it yet. God is in the business of using fallible, broken, sinful nobodies over and over again. God loves working with the under-talented, using the weak to show his glory. And aren't we all weak in our own way? Consider biblically that Noah was a drunk, Abraham was a liar, Moses was a murderer, and David, who we are told is a man after his own heart, is both a murderer and an adulterer. Jonah ran away from his responsibilities due to fear and prejudice. Jeremiah was suicidal, Hosea married a prostitute, Joseph was abused, and Zacchaeus was short. Peter was rash, James and John were known as the sons of thunder, Simon was a political radical, and Matthew was a hated tax collector. And all of those men were loved and used by God. Even three women of questionable character were ancestors of Jesus, specifically mentioned in the genealogy of that hated tax collector, Matthew, that I just mentioned. Tamar, who seduced and deceived her father-in-law. Bathsheba, the woman whom David committed adultery with. And Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho. There is little doubt that God delights to use us over and over, no matter what our background is. Moses was struggling with an internal narrative that we struggle with too. But the Bible tells us again and again that with God, we are enough. Remember, we are saints beloved by God, not sinners in the hands of an angry God. Co-heirs with Christ, not beggars at heaven's gate. Glorious splendors instead of everlasting horrors. Doctors Cloud and Townsend encourage us God has never looked for perfect people, just faithful ones. The biblical standard is not people who have never failed. It is people who, when they failed, got reconnected with God and went on in faith. God encouraged Moses. He assured him of his presence, did miracles, but it wasn't enough for Moses. Moses needed something more. He needed a person, a friend, a peer of grace. God gave him a companion for the journey. Just one other voice to help him and be with him and serve together, Moses' older brother, Aaron. And together, Moses and Aaron, with the mighty power of God, delivered the people of Israel from slavery. We need each other. We're not made to walk this life alone, even with God's help. There is something incredible about community that is supportive and encouraging. 
We can pray and pursue God and receive his grace, but often we need others to help us internalize God's grace. When we're isolated and relationally disconnected, it's easy to become trapped in our own patterns of thinking and spiral in guilt and shame. Fellow followers of Jesus can be very helpful here. And if we're honest, can hurt if we're not careful too. Moses needed to hear not only from God, but he needed a person to help him. And with Aaron and God's help, he became the leader of the people of Israel for decades, the subject of movies and a name everyone knows. Moses had a lot of narratives that needed to be replaced, and he needed help to do it. Cloud and Townsend tell us, God has mysteriously wired us so that what was once outside of us comes inside. Based on our past relationships, we learn how to accept or reject ourselves. Our relationships and their messages are internalized in our brains. If people reject themselves or some part of themselves, part of the answer is encouraging them to join a supportive, accepting community so they can internalize new ways of feeling towards themselves. To internalize the truth of who we are in Christ, we need lots of good input to replace the bad inputs we received and continue to receive in life. And a church family, fellow brothers and sisters, peers of grace are a huge part of that. Let's take a look at just one more example, how just one encouraging voice can turn the tide for others. As a church called Damascus Road, Paul's incredible encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus where he was going to persecute and kill Christians, then instead left him transformed is a big part of our identity. It's what we want to see happen in our community. People who are far from Jesus, maybe even violently opposed, discover the love and grace of Christ and are powerfully transformed. What we don't always talk about together was the role that one man named Barnabas had in Paul gaining acceptance in the first place. After Paul's conversion, he struggled to find people to trust him. He needed an advocate, an encourager, someone who was already trusted to use his credibility to gain Paul the chance to earn trust. Remember, Paul had been encouraging people to kill Christians. He was tough to trust. Enter Barnabas, which is a nickname given to a man named Joseph. And the nickname means son of encouragement. Imagine how encouraging this person had to be that it's wrapped up in his nickname. Is it any surprise that a man literally called the son of encouragement advocated for Paul to Jesus' first followers? This is Acts 9. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, talking about Paul, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. So Paul, who was originally called Saul and his name changed to reflect his transformation, was accepted because of Barnabas' advocacy for him. And Paul and Barnabas went on to do a lot of ministry together in Antioch, and they even went on missionary journeys as well, establishing churches throughout the Roman Empire, until they had a disagreement over one of their co-workers named John Mark. Now, John Mark was Barnabas' cousin, but he had abandoned Paul and Barnabas for reasons that aren't detailed in the text. After clarifying with the early followers of Jesus in Jerusalem that the Gentile believers didn't have to be circumcised or follow Jewish law to become followers of Jesus, 
Paul wanted to visit the various churches he and Barnabas had helped establish. This is what happened. Barnabas agreed and wanted to take along John Mark. But Paul disagreed strongly since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. Their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. So we have two men who had worked together and been powerful co-workers for the gospel, but they disagreed and they separated. It was so sharp that they could no longer continue working together. Barnabas, the original advocate for Paul, disagreed so much that they pursued ministry separately. Now often, since Paul wrote so much in the New Testament, we assume that Barnabas might have been the one at fault here. But Paul was far from perfect. He was not Jesus. Barnabas is advocating to Paul not to judge John Mark based on his past mistakes, to take another chance on him, to give him an opportunity to redeem himself. And Paul, in this instance, wasn't extending the grace he had received from Barnabas and others so long ago to John Mark. So Barnabas went on his own journey and took John Mark with him, while Paul chose a new co-worker named Silas to travel with him. Now imagine how you may have felt if you were John Mark in the situation, how incredibly challenging this would have been. He had abandoned his cousin Barnabas and Paul earlier. Who knows? But it's not hard to imagine that John Mark felt pretty guilty about it. Maybe, maybe a ton guilty about it. And Paul decided that he was no longer worth working with because of it. John Mark could have internalized that reality, even though he'd repented, even though he wanted to get back into ministry. Paul said, nope, I'm done with you. John Mark could have internalized the reality that he wasn't good enough, or he could do his best to internalize the message that he was worth taking a risk on in spite of past failures like Barnabas did. And what's great about the story is we know how it turned out. No matter how John Mark may have been struggling in that moment, he chose to persevere in ministry and became eventually not only close with Paul again, but also with Peter. In fact, John Mark is the, is the author of the Gospel of Mark with the Apostle Peter as his primary source for the eyewitness account. Not only that, but in Paul's final letter to his young protege, Timothy, when Paul was no longer just an, under house arrest in Rome, but was facing death and held in squalid conditions, Paul asked for John Mark's presence, saying this, Timothy, please come as soon as you can. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with me when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. When Paul was facing his death, he longed to see Timothy as well as Mark one last time. The man who Paul had rejected had grown and had become a great comfort and support to Paul. And clearly Paul had grown. He'd given John Mark another chance and developed great respect and admiration for him. Now I don't know specifically how that happened, but I imagine that Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was at the center of it. Barnabas encouraged Paul over and over again. He advocated for John Mark after Mark had made a mistake, and he continued to encourage him to become who God had made him to be. And I imagine that as Mark showed himself to be faithful and became who Barnabas encouraged him to be, that Barnabas encouraged Paul to reconnect with him. Without Barnabas, there's a good chance we wouldn't have the Gospel of Mark or the letters of Paul, which make up more than half of the New Testament. This one man, this incredible son of encouragement, advocated and spoke into these men's life in ways that was transformational. And this reality isn't just attested in the Bible, that even one person encouraging someone can change behavior radically, 
Modern psychology and social science tells us the same story. After the Second World War, there were a lot of questions about what led Germans to commit the crimes that they had committed. The book Influencer describes it this way. In 1961, psychologist Stanley Milgram set out to find U.S. citizens similar in disposition to what society believed were the crazy misfits, blind fundamentalists, and psychological wrecks who had marched Jews, Poles, and Romanies into the gas chamber at Auschwitz. Milgram was going to discover the power of just one voice encouraging someone to do something, in this case, something truly horrifying. This video captures the experiment and the results well. In 1961, Milgram conducted what Richard Gross calls the most famous and controversial of all obedience experiments. Milgram advertised for participants using a newspaper advert, stating that he would be studying the effects of punishment on learning. From the applications, Milgram selected 40 men of various different careers. The participants were all paid $4.50 for taking part in the study and received the money up front. The participants were taken to a laboratory which hosted an impressive looking shock generator with individual switches for shock intensities starting at light shock and increasing to a button marked XXX. Prior to the experiment, a survey of psychologists predicted that fewer than 1 in 20 would administer shocks as high as 300 volts, labelled intense shock, on the machine, and just 1 in 1000 would use the 450 volt XXX button. But this was quite simply not the case. A scientist met the participants wearing a grey lab coat and introduced himself as Jack Williams. He was required to remain serious and emotionless throughout the study. Two participants were met by the scientist at a time. Well, one participant and one stooge who would always take the role of the learner. The learner was strapped into an electric chair with an electrode connected to his wrist and the participant was told that the electrode was controlled by his shock generator. The participants then set about a learning task whereby the learner had to remember word pairs. With each word pair correctly remembered, the participant teacher would provide another word. But for any word pair incorrectly remembered, the participant was instructed to inform the learner of the correct answer, increase the shock by 15 volts, and administer the electric shock to the learner. Every participant in Milgram's study shocked the learner to 300 volts, an intense shock which would result in the learner shouting in apparent pain. As the voltage increased, the screams of agony increased from the learner in the room next door until the learner made no noise at all. Participants were told that a non-response was equivalent to a wrong response and therefore should be punished using a further electric shock. If participants expressed concern, the scientists would provide prods from a simple continue to a direct instruction that the participant must proceed. 65% of the participants continued shocking the learner right to the end of the 450 volt scale marked XXX. Even when met with eerie silence from the learner who had up until that point been screaming in pain, they still used the XXX button to shock him one more time. All of the participants used the intense shock button. 26 of the 40 participants killed their learner. What Milgram discovered is that in the right situations and with the right encouragement, almost any of us could commit horrible crimes. 
This was such a disturbing finding that Milgram came under attack from all sides. People couldn't believe there was little difference between war criminals from the Nazi regime and everyday Americans. But Milgram didn't stop his experiment there. He kept researching, and there's good news to be found in this incredible story. Influencer goes on. Stanley Milgram clearly demonstrated that one respected individual can create conditions that compel ordinary citizens to act in curious, if not unhealthy ways. But he also found the opposite to be true. After discovering that he could propel people to act against their own consciousness, he began exploring which variable had the largest impact on compliance. Was it the size of the room, the look and feel of the electronic machine, or the distance of, to the subject? After conducting tests with over a thousand subjects of every ilk and under every imaginable condition, Milgram concluded that one variable more than any other affected how people behaved, the presence of one more person. Dr. Milgram learned that if a Confederate either shocked the person all the way to 450 volts or stood up to the authority figure, it dramatically affected how the research subjects acted. He could increase the already stunning 65% of all the wayers to 90% if only one other person, a Confederate, gave a full dose of power just before the subject had to turn at the machine. Equally important, he discovered that the number who would administer the full shock dropped to a mere 10% if the one person before him or her refused to do so. Either way, it took just one person to turn the tide of compliance. It took just one person, from Barnabas to this famous experiment to you. Let's be people who choose to be peers of grace to each other and become sons and daughters of encouragement like Barnabas. Let's remind each other that we are saints beloved by God and not sinners in the hands of an angry God, co-heirs with Christ and not beggars at the heaven's gates, glorious splendors instead of everlasting horrors. Just a few practical tips as we work to help each other internalize our identity in Christ and internalize it ourselves. As we encourage each other, let's encourage each other with grace and truth. We need to make sure that we aren't just offering blanket support, no matter what the situation is. Sometimes people need to be supported and sometimes they need to be corrected, but either way, it needs to be done graciously. A proper tone is as loving and kind as it is firm. It is clear about what is wrong or right and does not let a person slide, but it is also kind. We call this a New Testament tone because in the words of the New Testament, it corrects with grace and truth. It is not only honest, but also kind and accepting. If your internal voice is harsh and mean and judgmental to yourself, if we beat up on ourselves, we need help in changing the tone of our conscience by internalizing new voices from scripture, from friends, from trusted family. Often our internal voice is parroting what we hear our parents or caregivers say to us, especially when we made a mistake. How they talked to themselves and to us often is how we talk to ourselves today. Doctors Cloud and Townland give the example of one member of a support group that they led named Summer. Summer had patterns of behavior that were causing her issues, and her internal messaging told her that she was stupid and terrible and a failure. But the group that she was in did not agree. The support group gave her kind and positive messages about her behavior that she wanted to change. 
And so the next time that she was confronted with the option to make the same mistake again, to fall in the same pattern of behavior that she would beat herself up over again and again, instead of the terrible voices that she heard in her head, she had new ones that didn't call her stupid and weren't angry, but were for her. This is what grace is. And we can respond to it better than an adversarial, critical, mean tone. The group had done its work. They had transformed her conscience from an enemy to our friend. That's what the doctor said. In some ways, it's very similar to resolving conflict. It borders on superhuman for someone to respond to your angry, insulting correction with humility and grace. But if you assume the best about them and explain how you feel and what is happening in humility and grace, there's a much better chance that they will respond in kind. Anger produces defensiveness or aggression or avoidance. But grace and truth provides the environment for resolved conflict, for healthy, healthy responses and changes, and for deepening of relationships. We need to give ourselves the same grace and give it to each other to help them internalize new voices. And when we're encouraging, we're encouraging with the truth of the Bible, not just with our own experiences or wisdom we've heard from families or friends. We all need God's wisdom. We need to follow the way of Jesus and the leading of the Spirit, which helps us become more and more like Jesus today. We need Trinitarian truth and grace, not empty platitudes or personal opinions. Secondly, like the example of summer, I encourage you to find a group. We are made for community and we need to navigate this life with others who are with and for us, who are on the same journey that we are on. We like to think of ourselves as either the hero or the victim of our own stories. Either we're exceptional in our awesomeness or exceptional in our misery. And when we're isolated, it is especially easy to believe that our experiences are uncommon. But you aren't alone. We are all facing the joys and sorrows of life. We all struggle. We all celebrate. You aren't alone. And in a group, you can experience and internalize that. First Corinthians tells us the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. I encourage you to join a small group here and connect more deeply relationally. But this is about more than just connecting to a church or to our community. It's incredibly helpful for us to talk to people who are experiencing something similar to us and have a similar life situation and outlook. Years ago, when my first marriage fell apart and I was going through a divorce, I went to counseling, but I also talked to people I knew had experienced the same thing. At that time, only a small handful of people knew what I was going through. My family didn't even know at that point. I was talking to my therapist and she was incredibly helpful. But the conversations I had with my seminary classmates and Christians in town that had walked the same journey I was on helped me feel like I wasn't alone, like there was hope that maybe something good could come from my brokenness. The same was true for my wife, Megan, when she was trying to navigate postpartum depression after our daughter, Catherine, was born. A group run by some nurses at Banner Hospital was critical, maybe even life-saving for her health. When we open up about what's happening to us, when we confess what's so hard in a group of fellow strugglers, it can be transformative when paired with the truth of scripture and God's presence. Cloud and Townsend again. When people confess to one another, they find out that they are not weird and different, but are just like everyone else, fellow sojourners, fellow strugglers. This cuts down tremendously on guilt. If you are divorcing, get together with other people who've gone 
or are going through a divorce. If you are an addict, get together with other addicts. Strugglers need to be with strugglers. And in reality, that's all of us. No matter what season you're in or what struggles you're facing, find a group to help. And when you are in a group, you can start to practice with a safe community. Practice encouraging each other about who we are in Christ. Practice balancing grace and truth in your encouragement and words. And practice confession. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. So let's confess with a safe group who we truly are. Pray for each other. Tell ourselves the truth that we are forgiven and loved and find healing in Christ together. Cloud and Townsend. When people are in grace settings and truly confessing to each other, their bad parts get totally known, accepted, and integrated. When all of our badness is known and loved by grace, it loses its power. The goal is for grace to know all of our bad parts and confession to God and others achieves that. The result is that guilt is dissolved. We are all a part of God's great plan for dispensing grace. God's great gift of life and forgiveness is available to everyone, but God delights to involve us in the process. Just as we have the chance to partner with God and share our lives and faith with others, we can join the voice of the Holy Spirit to claim the truth of who we are to each other. We are saints beloved by God and not sinners in the hands of an angry God. Co-heirs with Christ and not beggars at heaven's gates. Glorious splendors instead of everlasting horrors. We are all invited into the grand story of redemption and help everyone we meet internalize the reality that they are loved beyond their ability to understand, that they are invited into the ever-expanding community of love that the Bible calls the kingdom of God, that they can know forgiveness and rest in the way of Jesus, the absolute best way to live both now and forever. God is calling people to himself. We can all become like Jesus, and as his followers, we have the incredible privilege to join God in his work in the world. So let's choose to use our powers of encouragement and influence for the good of our friends and family, as well as the world. Let's pray together. Lord, you've wired us in incredible ways, in ways that we can have significant impact on each other, that the words that we speak are powerful. May we be people who speak grace and truth, who speak encouragement, who declare the truth of your word over others. Help us to replace these in narratives that get so tangled up in us that are not true. Help us to remember that we are forgiven, that we are declared not guilty, that we are co-heirs with Christ, sons and daughters of the one true King. We love you, Jesus. May we be dispensers of grace today and always. It's in Jesus' holy and precious and powerful name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at damascusroadtucson.com.